Good morning. Uh, we're going to continue this series then from Matthew uh, related to Jesus' last words before he moved on to Jerusalem. And we've heard about the wedding invitation and it was an unusual invitation in that the invitees were the sinners, the people you wouldn't normally invite to a wedding. Those people who were looked down upon by the people who consider themselves to be superior, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And last week, you heard Laurie introduce private questions asked by the disciples. They were hoping for answers uh, about Jesus' second coming. And these two questions were, when will it be and what are the signs? And Laurie told us that uh, the signs of the end times, gave some idea what they might be, but noted that we have been in the end times for over 2,000 years. So these signs have been going on for a long, long time. And I can't help but think that the disciples were disappointed and perhaps a bit by, confused by Jesus' response. Uh, which included five parables. And Laurie did one of the parables last week. Today, in that sermon, uh, speech there, you saw three parables, which we'll be looking at, and then Laurie will finish off next week with the final one, which I think tidies everything up. Uh, but we're going to look at these three parables. So the title for today really is The Day and the Hour Unknown. And if we can really grab that concept, if we've got it, we could just go home now, because that is what we're about. And I've, I've not preached here many times, but for me, I'm thinking this is the most vital of messages, is understanding that. Uh, so come back to Jesus' response then. In truth, I believe that Jesus answered the disciples as well as he could given the circumstances. And I think it was unusual that he told five parables all on a trot without being interrupted by the disciples. And from that, I'm getting the impression that Jesus was concerned that they fully understood two things. I was going to put those on there because this is part of that vital thing. Uh, The timing of this is all under God's control. That's the one bit. And the other part of this is about who will be taken. So this message today is when and who. And it doesn't quite answer the disciples because they were asking about when will it be and what are the signs. So they didn't get really quite the answer they were looking for. And it's strange that Jesus goes right back to the beginning of the Bible, back to Noah. And we've all heard that story before. Times were bad. Everyone was wicked. The exception, of course, being Noah, who lived in fellowship with God. And right there, I think we have a key indicator of desirable characteristics for the who. Someone who lives in fellowship with God. 
do you know God? Does God know you? And Noah had passed this first part of a selection, if you like, but unfortunately for him, that wasn't enough. There was a lot more. Because God told Noah that he was planning to flood the world and instructed Noah to build the ark. Now, Noah obviously believed God because we know that he constructed the ark. Can you imagine the mirth that he must have endured? Building a big boat like that in the middle of the desert because it was going to flood. And imagine the people, what? You're going to put a pair of every living creature into that as well? You must be bonkers. It was something, wasn't it, that was way beyond belief. Yet Noah had sufficient faith And that faith was persistent because, from what I can understand, it took getting towards a hundred years to do this. And that was part of Noah's preparation, if you like, for the end times. And the end times, in this case, was the flood, which was coming fairly soon. So there's that concept there. But what happened once it was all built and the animals were gathered in? A statement I hadn't really clocked onto before, it says, God closed the door. We have this story about Noah did all that construction, he gathered everything in, but God chose that moment. God closed the door. Prior to that, people could have approached Noah and said, oh Noah, I'm sorry, for calling you a fool. I'm sorry for this. Can I come and join your venture? But after that moment, and I'll keep referring to the moment because this is the timing, after that moment, it was too late. And it was only after that moment that the signs became apparent. The clouds appeared, the rain fell, the rivers flowed, the rivers flooded, Water gushed out of the earth, and then we know what happened after that. But it only occurred after God had chosen the moment. And it needs to come back to this idea of the wedding invitation that I think Jesus talked about. In this case, we might think that Noah was the only person invited. Certainly he was the only person that was told to build an ark which would save him. But I can't help but think that prior to this, there'd been ample opportunity for everyone to walk with God. But there came a moment when God was so distressed by everything, he looked at Noah and said, you do this. But the others were still not totally condemned because they could have joined Noah, I think. And you know, what we're talking about today is not isolated from our little series. And I'll just go back to the story that Paul pasted as well the other week. If you remember that one, that was the vineyard owner and the workers. And remember, I was one of those that was there working first thing in the morning. And 
feeling, well, not really feeling angry, but the person working first thing in the morning would feel really angry that they'd slaved away all day. And then somebody that came for the last 30 minutes got the same reward that I got. And it seems so unfair. But the key thing is, each of those workers came when they were invited. The person went to them, do you want to come to the vineyard to work for me? Yes, and they came. So that is the bit that matters. Do you accept the invitation? And that invitation is there for us all. I'll carry back, back to this now. So Jesus developed the idea of the moment more. There will be no sure sign that, that a moment is imminent. And you can't afford, really, to be like my granddad, who was always saying, there's plenty of time for that when I'm on my deathbed. And uh, fortunately for him, I think uh, there was ample time on his deathbed. And I, he did change his mind. But, you know, that's not what we're aiming to. He was playing brinkmanship. And we don't know when that moment's coming. We can't afford this game of brinkmanship. But my granddad was putting it off. And we all do this, don't we, in our everyday lives. We're always putting things off. We procrastinate. And just as it is in Noah's day, we just carry on. People continue, as it said in there, eating, drinking, getting married, all that stuff. But that moment came. And as I've gone through life here, and you will all have experience this everything is going on as normal and then one day something happens and your life is different after that maybe a parent dies a child dies you have a car crash something but that event occurs you had no way of knowing it was going to happen and I think it's vital that we understand that God chooses the hour and the day. And if we're not careful, we can be caught short. So we come on to the next parable there, was the house owner. And again, Jesus highlights the element of surprise. This moment will come like a thief in the night. In the previous chapter, he said it would be like a flash of lightning. It's so quick that you can't respond. This story seemed a bit odd to me because at first sight it seemed that Jesus was saying that we should keep watch, that we should stay awake to catch this moment. But we're humans, we can't stay awake. And then Laurie pointed out to me the other day, it said, but John, it says, if we knew the hour, we don't know the hour. So we can't stay awake, we can't be ready for that hour. Well, we can be ready for the hour, but we don't know when it's come, so we have to be prepared. 
And maybe I could give you an analogy, if you like, from flying, but obviously when we go flying, there's some planning to be done beforehand, preparation, pre-flight planning. But if we're on a long route, there is always a possibility that something catastrophic could happen to the aeroplane and we would need to land as soon as possible. Now, what you wouldn't want is for to have to deal with this catastrophe, whatever it was, and then start to ask, well, where are we going to go? What runway are they using? What sort of approach are we going to do? And so someone on the crew was always tasked to do what we called weather gathering. So there are lots of broadcast stations that broadcast the, the weather at all the airports. And what we could do then is look at the airport, always keeping an eye on our destination, of course, what's happening to the weather there. But you want to know what's happening to the weather along your route. So we could get to a point where we could say, OK, between here and that place over there, if something happens, then we're going to that airport there. We already know what the weather is there. We already know what runway's in use. We can look in a book to see what landing aids they have. And so all of that sort of stuff can be pre-prepared. Then when the emergency happens, we're dealing just with the emergency. The rest is routine. And what I found is that that was so successful that this emergency was a non-event. And I kind of think, in our own lives, yes, globally we have this end of Jesus coming again, but in our own life we've got an ending too. And wouldn't it be good if we were so prepared for that ending that when it came, it was a non-event. We just stepped into the next stage. No great fear, no great anxiety, just moved on. And Jesus, in the previous chapter, did say, don't be alarmed. The next parable in this little run is the faithful or unfaithful servant. So Jesus is still holding on to the idea of the moment, but he's shifting direction a little bit to the question of who. Who will be accepted? And don't forget, we're all invited, but we won't all be accepted. So here we see that this servant is being promoted. In a sense, the master's gone away. Uh, the servant is pr being promoted. So the idea is the master is not watching over him. And the question is, how does that servant behave when he's not being observed? How does he treat the people that are underneath him? And this really reminds me that Jesus came to us as a servant king. He showed us that no matter how powerful or influential we might become, that we are here to serve each other in community in a way 
that God wishes us to do it. That is our function in life, almost. And that is one of the desirable characteristics for selection, if you like. And I don't know if you've noticed these eyes I put around here. It was to try and uh, look at that concept of being watched, if you like, in a slightly different way. And I don't know about you, but I don't like being watched. <laughs> I feel very uncomfortable. But psychologists have known, noticed that it changes people's behaviour. And we are very influenced, and uh, psychologists have been experimenting with pictures of eyes. And in a university cafeteria, they put some of these up, and they found that when these eyes were around the cafeteria, that more people cleared the table. More, more people took those trays and put them somewhere else, because they'd been watched by nothing. They then, oh, try these near a, a place where people put their bikes, bicycle rack thing, and fewer bicycles were stolen. Uh, and so these eyes really convey this idea that Big Brother is watching us. But this little story about the servant is to just indicate to us, really, that this is not the relationship that God wants to have with us. He doesn't want a Big Brother relationship. As in the Garden of Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve. As in Noah, he had a fellowship with God. This is the style of relationship that God seeks with us. There's no interest in a big brother relationship. He wants us to behave well, not because we're being watched, but because we want to behave well. In short, God is looking for people to do the right thing. Not to be seen to do, but because they wish to do. Noah was faithful. He could be trusted to get on, do the right things in life without supervision. And I'm guessing part of this question is, how are we behind closed doors? Away from church? Away from our partners? Do we stray? Do we continue to be good? Do we become sloppy, slovenly? And then finally, there's the story of the ten virgins, which I have to say, I was struggling in how I was going to talk about this, and to even yesterday afternoon, I wasn't happy. Uh, because I was looking at it too literally. I was looking at this oil that the girls had simply as a fuel to light a beacon. And it wasn't enough. I was going, this is not right. And then I had the thought, what is the significance of oil in the Bible? And once we start to look at what oil means, it starts to make sense. But oil in the Bible is always valuable. And you might remember a while ago, I talked about the woman with the alabaster jar. Do you remember? She was supposedly a woman of ill repute, but she used all of her precious oil to anoint Jesus' feet. And so we get this concept 
of oil being used to anoint. And then if we carry on looking at other things, we find that God uses oil to anoint kings. And we know that Jesus is a king too. And if we look at uh, Psalm 89, the second part of that, which is uh, God's promise to David, I'm starting at verse 19. So I see some of you want to look. I'll give you a moment. I'll take a drink. It says, In a vision long ago, you said to your faithful servants, I have given help to a famous soldier. I have given the throne to one I chose from the people. I have made my servant David king by anointing him with holy oil. But then he goes on to say, in effect, what this holy oil does, what this anointing does. My strength will always be with him. My power will make him strong. So this is the concept, I think, of the oil, the anointing, is that the strength, resilience that we can get from God. And in modern times, we might say that we've been blessed with the Holy Spirit. That's the the modern way in which we may say this. So if we're blessed with the Holy Spirit, then we are at one with God, if you like. And as Adam and Eve walking with God, as Noah living in fellowship with God, this is about having an established relationship with God. So then come back to the girls, and if you think about the oil in that sense as being representing an established relationship with God, then the girls who had the spare oil had reserves. They had invested a lot in having this uh, relationship with God. And you can't give that to somebody. You can't say, oh, give me some of your relationship with God. You can't do that, can you? It's something that's very personal. Uh, It's not a transferable commodity. And I like the ending of this parable. It certainly fits in with it. It says, The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. So... Jesus pulling the three things together there. All in one sentence, the concept of this wedding banquet, the coming of Christ again, being ready, and the shutting of the door. The same with the ark. God is choosing that moment. And it just goes on, the other sentences there. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. I don't know you. This is another indication, if you like, of a desirable character, to be known by God. Do you know God? Does God know you? And we have a saying in our culture, don't we? It's never too late 
Well, when it comes to this special invitation, one day it will be too late. That's it. Thank you. Mm-hmm.